Barnswood uh, remains standing um, as I read Jesus's description of the well-off life from the Gospel of Matthew. For all that would seek to follow Jesus, hear his invitation for who is truly blessed. And Jesus opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Before you take a seat, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, you are here. And you are the God who fights for us. You are the God who redeems us and the God who delivers us. And so, Lord, today, through the work of your spirit, use feeble, frail human words to meet your people where they are with your truth, to remind us of this life we've been invited into with Jesus and that grace changes everything. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you're uh, a guest with us and you're here for the first time, I know we have a few guests with us. Great to have you. We uh, have been in a sermon series uh, called Bless. We're uh, looking at the very first section of what's been called the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And, And this section of the Beatitudes is giving us this picture of what is the good life, um, who is truly well off in this world. And Jesus is giving us an invitation to apprentice our life under his teaching if we so choose. Uh, these Beatitudes, uh, they show us also that the happy life that Jesus is inviting us into uh, is upside down from what we may hear in the world and what Uh, it looks like. Uh, You think of where Jesus has already taught us. He said, um, it is, quote, the poor in spirit, those who don't hold themselves in high regard, they are inheriting this kind of happy life. Uh, in, In a world driven by power and those who take themselves very, very seriously, myself included, uh, it is the meek who are coming out on top. And today, uh, we're, we're going to look at what some have said is the centerpiece of the Beatitudes. Jesus said this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's an incredible promise in, in this section that you, me, we can see God. There's, there's this great promise. You can see and know God. 
So how do we take hold of this promise? Well, we got four questions we need to consider this morning. The first one, what is the heart? Second, why is it so hard to protect? Third, what do we have to uproot? And lastly, how do we uproot it? So what is the heart? Why is it so hard to protect? What do we have to uproot? How do we do it? First, what is the heart? Uh, in this passage, we're, we're given this beautiful promise of those who will see God. And, and it tells us about the heart. Uh, it's this Greek word, cardia. Uh, you, you get the idea of cardiac, our English word for cardiac uh, from it, the cardiologist. But the ancient version of the heart was, was not this organ that was found inside of you. Uh, the ancient version of this idea of, of heart uh, was really to speak to the core of human personhood. Uh, the heart is synonymous with your will. Uh, it's the place within you where you make decisions. It's ultimately your heart is your wanter. What, what do you really, really want, want underneath everything else? At the core of who you are, what you choose comes from your heart. And, and, and the problem is many people since the enlightenment, uh, we've actually thought, no, the heart's actually not the most important thing. The, the most important thing is your mind. Uh, the most important thing are your thoughts uh, that, that really all we are are brains on sticks in many ways. Uh, this is how uh, Descartes, he, he explained it. I think, therefore I am. That was really the driving motivation behind this to, to say, oh, that is what we're about. Um, now to say that, I, I'm not saying our thoughts and our minds are not important. They're actually very essential, but they're not the core of who you are as a person. St. Augustine said at the core of the human person is not what you know, it is what do you love? What do you love? What, what holds your affection? What motivates you? That is why the heart is so important. Your heart, your heart, my heart, directs our lives. And, and this is why it's so important in the Bible. Actually, from beginning to end, we see the importance of the heart and how important it is for you to be on watch for your heart. The writer of Proverbs uh, says, you have to protect this heart. You have to treasure this heart above all else. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 4. Above all else, above all else, are you listening? The writer says, guard your what? Heart, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Above everything you do, guard your heart, protect it, keep it safe. But what we find is our heart is pulled and pushed and tossed about. Uh, that, that, we, that we find there, there are like things that I want to do and I don't do them. And I, or, or the opposite, the, the, the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing if you've been there. Why is it so hard to protect our heart? That brings us to the second question. Why is it so hard to protect? Uh, in this beatitude, uh, we are given this promise, maybe the greatest promise of all for you and me, that the pure in heart will see God. And, and one of the reasons the heart is so hard to protect is that you and I believe uh, we can take care of what the heart needs in our own strength. 
Uh, we'll say things uh, that, that we, we, we think that we believe, but, but what has happened is sin has gotten into our hearts and makes us believe things that aren't necessarily true. We, we'll say things sometimes like this. We'll say, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad compared to other people. Uh, uh, they made me do it. Uh, we'll say things like that. It's really not my fault or this is just not who I am. But we don't realize that under all of that is a deception taking place. And the Bible paints a very different picture of your heart and my heart. It says this in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The reason the heart is so hard to protect is we are prone to believing things about ourselves that are not In reality, things that are not true, our hearts will deceive us. Uh, They've actually done a lot of studies on this. Dan Ariely is a professor at Duke University, and he wrote a wonderful book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. How we lie to everyone, especially ourselves. And in the book, Ariely did a bunch of amazing research. And he says there, there are these two primary uh, motivations that we have in life. Uh, one for selfish gain and the other to avoid pain. And Ariely says at times, those two core motivations can be in conflict with each other. And, And so we have to work through that. And when something is so bad that I want, I'll do anything to get it. How do I rationalize that, my selfish gain, with the fact that I'm doing something wrong? I'm lying about it. Does that make sense? There's, those two core motivations can be in conflict with each other, selfish gain and avoiding pain. And this is what Ariely says in his book. He says this, this is where our amazing cognitive flexibility comes into play with this tension we feel. Thanks to this human skill, as long as we cheat only a little bit, we can benefit from selfish gain and still view ourselves as marvelous human beings. What Dan Ariely calls cognitive flexibility, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah called a deceitful heart. And Ariely goes on to give empirical data of this phenomenon in our lives. He writes this. Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. Friends, can you guess which relative is the most popular one to die. Grandma. Grandma always seems to be dying. In fact, Dr. Mike Adams from Eastern Connecticut State University did some research on this. They do research on everything. Did research on this, found that grandmothers were 10 times more likely to die before a midterm And 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Even worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at an even higher risk. (laughs) Students who are failing, students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than a non-failing student. 
Adams found, Mike Adams found that the most deciding factor for whether grandma lives or grandma dies is actually their grandchild's GPA. So if you're here today and you are a grandma, I know we have a few. If you hear nothing else from this sermon, don't let your kid go to college, especially if they're not a good student. It might kill you. These moments, these moments of rationalizing in our life happen to us all the time. When we are driving in our car and uh, another person cuts you off and you want them to know that you think they're number one, but with the wrong finger or you start honking your horn much longer than you need to, or you pass by them and you shake your head or you just stare, you just stare at them, you know, or the best one of all that you start yelling at them from your car as if they could hear you. And and then after that moment happens, what, what, what do we say? Wow, if that person wasn't such a loser, I wouldn't have had to act this way. Or the time the, uh, your boss comes to you and says, hey, uh, are we ready for that project to be presented this afternoon? And you respond, absolutely, I'll get all the info over to you later today. What you really meant was, I had no idea there's a project due. I had no idea it was due today. And I will cram in the next few hours to get done what needs to be done. So I don't have to deal with your disapproval. This is the reason we fudge on resumes and taxes and dating apps and Facebook and Instagram. As Jeremiah told us that Ariely and Adams have only confirmed The heart is deceptive above all things. We say to ourselves, surely I'm fine. Surely I will see God. I mean, I'm not like Tom or Mary or Kevin or who else. Friends, what we really need is a surgery. A surgery. Because there are things that have gotten tethered to our heart that need to be detangled. We will need to get really honest about what is in our hearts that we need to uproot. And that's our third question. What do we have to uproot? Uh, In this beatitude, Jesus tells us that the person who would choose to live in the life of the kingdom will be pure in heart. Uh, The Greek word for pure is the word katharos. If you've heard someone talk about, um, uh, they had a cathartic experience. They had a cathartic experience. They had a a cleansing experience, a purifying experience. In fact, most commentators believe that Jesus in this beatitude is, is talking about and trying to name what we have to uproot from an Old Testament psalm. 
Psalm 24, this is what it says. Uh, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol. David tells us what we have to uproot are the idols. You see, every place in the Old Testament that talks about purity of heart, it, it, it talks about the heart being purified, cleansed from idols. So what is an idol? Uh, an idol is something in your life and my life that is usually very, very good, but has become the enemy of the best. It's usually something very, very good, but it's become the enemy of of the best. It's usually something very, very good that becomes your ultimate security. Uh, It's something in your life that has become something you live for. Um, So let's say if your idol is power, uh, if your idol is power, you, you you just can't stand to lose. Kind of like Alabama football. Too, is it too soon? Too soon. Yeah, don't even clap because some of you, you lost too. So don't, yeah. Only UCF people can cheer right now. If your idol is power, if your idol is power, you're not only a competitive person, but you just can't imagine losing or failing at anything. You always have to come out on top. It's the only way you can live. Um, if your idol is love or approval, your greatest fear is rejection. And so you'll gladly lose the game or whatever you're playing with everyone else. You'll let that, the person consumed with power, you'll let them win. Um, just as long as the relationship stays intact. Just as long as everyone continues to love you. If your idol is control, your greatest fear is failure. You will keep your standards so high for you and everyone else in your life. And to the point there's, there, there, there can never be a backfire. There can never be a situation out of your control. So you have, a, you have backup plans for your backup plans for your backup plans for what may come in the future. Now, love competition, preparation. These are all really, really good things. There's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but when they become your identity, uh, when they become your security, uh, when they become the source of meaning for how you make sense of life, that is when they become an idol. Uh, I read a story about the Knights Templar They were a Catholic military group from the 12th century crusades. And and in this story, they they talk about before they would go off to battle, um, these soldiers were taken and they were, they were baptized. And when they were baptized in the, they shared that as they were being baptized, they would hold up the sword out of the water uh, as if to say, uh, to God and everyone else, uh, God, you can have every part of me except this one thing. Except this one thing. 
And, and as I was reading this, I just, I started laughing. I was like, how, how, am I reading this right? How foolish can they be that, that they're getting baptized and they're holding something up out of the water? And I realized, wait a second, we all do that. I mean, I, 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 what if we got really honest during our baptism moments and you were baptizing, but you just, you held out your iPhone <laughs> or, or you're being baptized and you're a student and you're, you're holding up, uh, here's my dream college. Or, or it's your business card. God, you can have everything except my, my career. Uh, what, what, what is it for you that has become your identity? What's become your dream? What's become the, the, the place? God, you can have every part of me except this one, this one thing. That's the bent in us to be holding something out of the water. That is what God is saying has to be uprooted. That is what is destroying your soul as much as it promises to deliver. That is what Jesus is inviting us to see. He's telling you the truly blessed life I offer you this morning, the life of flourishing and contentment and joy and peace that is available to you, but you will not experience it unless we talk about what it is that you are holding up out of the water or to be more biblically correct, what we have taken into our hearts. That's the picture we get actually in the Bible. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel said, the idols aren't out there. We've actually taken the idols deep into the core of our human personhood, into our heart. This is what Ezekiel spoke to about a revelation from God concerning the people of Israel in his day. It says this, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me and the word of the Lord came to me and said, son, a man, these men have taken their idols into their what hearts. Friends, what do you need God to uproot? What, what has tethered itself to the core of who you are. And here's the thing, whatever it is, God wants to free you today. Uh, I remember reading a story from Trevor Hudson. Uh, he was a retired pastor. And Trevor shared about how he would have a monthly meeting um, with a recovering alcoholic uh, named John. And John would share about um, this moment in his life and his journey of being released from addiction that he felt God was calling him to reach out and to connect with another member of his family uh, who was also battling addiction. But John was basically saying, I, I had no idea what to say. I just felt God was leading me to do this. And so John went to their house and he knocked on the door and the seven-year-old daughter in a tattered dress answered the door. And she, she led him back to the kitchen uh, where the scent of stale booze filled the air. 
And she invited John to sit down. And even at this point, John still had no idea what he was going to say to, his, to her parents. They came in, they sat down. And as they sat before him in that moment, he says, God impressed upon me what I was supposed to share uh, with these two parents battling addiction. He said to them, it really doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't have to be this way. I believe today God is giving us the same invitation through Jesus. It really doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be stuck in patterns and behaviors that are sabotaging our lives and those we are in relationship with. God may be saying to you this morning, look at all the pressure you are putting on yourself to achieve, to be loved, to be in control, to get over your past, to secure your future. What a terrible, terrible burden you are carrying with you. And it really doesn't have to be this way. And I think because God is good and because he loves you, he wants the best for you. And that's why he would give you this invitation. God would say to you, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And if you wanted to, you could step into a different kind of life, free of striving and worrying and fear, free from the opinion and approval of others, free from whether the job comes through or the promotion actually happens, free from the medical report and all its implications, a life where I am with you and you no longer have to be consumed with outcomes, but you will have to lay down whatever idol you have taken into your heart. You will have to lay down whatever you're holding out of the water because that is the only way to experience the kind of life I long to give you. So the question is, how do we uproot it? That's our final question. How do we uproot the thing that's taken hold of our heart? As I mentioned earlier, the heart and the will in the Bible are essentially the same thing. They, they differ in function, but they, they're essentially the same thing. They're at the core center of who you are as a person. And see, a lot of people in this situation, what, what, what do we need to do? I just need to, I just need to try harder. I, I just need to work harder. I just need to be at church more. I just need to read my Bible more. I just need to do these things. And then, then I will be pure in heart. Try harder, be like Jesus. Try harder to obey God, become a person. But any addict will tell you, any addict will tell you whether you identify your addiction as a substance or a behavior, any addict will tell you that trying harder will not cut it. 
You see, what we call addictions today is what the Bible calls idols. We've gotten attached to the wrong things and we have the wrong stuff in the core of who we are. And what the Bible tells us about your will that has only been confirmed by psychologists and those who study the human person, your will was made to surrender to something. Your will, my will, every person who's ever lived, your will was made to surrender to something. Now, you can surrender your heart over and be an alcoholic, a rageaholic, a workaholic, a greedaholic, or a shopaholic. It does not matter. But we will have to surrender our will to something because... That is what it means to be human. And that is how God designed us. You can continue to surrender your will to all these other idols. And they will gladly take up space and rent room in your heart. Or, or you can surrender your will to God. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Great Divorce, says there are really only two ways to be human. Uh, he says there's only two ways to be human. And it's a person who, who says, thy will be done to God, or my will be done. Thy will or my will. Jesus put it this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my apprentice, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, Jesus doesn't see surrender as this thing that happened one point in time. You see, he sees surrender as this thing that's just a continual part of the life who is apprenticed to Jesus. That they're, they're continually handing over what they think is best, what they think should happen, what they think the way the future should go. And they're just saying, thy will be done. Thy will be done. And it's in that place of surrender that you and I can begin to experience the kind of life available in the Beatitudes, the truly blessed life, the truly well-off life is available to you and me when we surrender our lives into his hands. Uh, Lane, our middle son, um, a few years back was in this incredible creative season of life. He just loved drawing pictures and, and, and he really took, you know, the creative license of process that he had because his pictures were completely out of proportion, what he was drawing. So that we had these massive, massive heads that were on these like tiny, tiny little bodies. Um, there was one picture he, he drew and um, he gave me like three hairs on my head. And uh, I was thinking, come on, man, there's, there's more than three. Um, uh, and he he just kind of ventured into this beautiful, creative, uh, license that he had as the author of these drawings. Uh, but there was one picture that just stuck with me that he drew. Uh, it was a picture that he drew of me and him walking together. Um, and, and in this picture of walking, we're, we're holding hands. 
Uh, but, I, but I don't just have hands. I have gigantic hands. I mean, my hands are as big as my entire body in this picture. And, 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 and I'm holding Lane's hand, but you can't even see Lane's hand because my hand has engulfed uh, his little hand in this picture as we walk together. And after he gave me this picture, I just kind of sat with it a little bit and admired his creative license. But in the silence... In the silence, I found God speaking to me. And I began to be choked up because I could hear God saying to me from this picture, Tyler, you do not have to worry. You don't have to prove yourself. Tyler, you don't have to do all the striving and the earning and all the pressure you've put on yourself. You don't have to do this. Because I'm a very good God and I have very, very big hands to take care of you. You can rest and surrender to me. And friends, I think God wants the same for you. I think God wants you to know that he is a very, very good God with very, very large hands to meet whatever needs to be uprooted today. That you could live life with Jesus and know the life of purity and peace that he longs to give us. Would you stand as we close? Friends, where is God calling you to rearrange your life to experience the kind of life Jesus longs to give you? Maybe there is something here you've been holding up out of the water saying, God, you can have all of me You just can't have this. God says to you and me this morning, surrender over to me. Give it to me. Give it into my very big and large hands. And I will keep you safe. And I will be with you all of your days. For you shall see God. You shall see God. Let's pray. Well, Father, would that be our heart? Maybe for the first time, maybe for in a really, really long time, maybe fresh today that we would make that prayer to surrender our hearts and our wills to a very good God with very large hands to meet whatever is before us. So Lord, by your grace, allow us to surrender our hearts to you, seeking to follow Jesus in our lives, knowing that you will set us free, knowing that you will keep us safe, and in the end, knowing that we will see God forever. We pray this and the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.